0: and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. In the debut novel, The Applicant, by Nazla Koja, Leila, a Turkish student living in Berlin, has had the bottom drop out from underneath her. Her student visa has been revoked after her advisor failed her thesis, and she finds herself suing one of the most venerable institutions in Germany. As she awaits her fate in court, Leila finds work cleaning rooms in an Alice in Wonderland-themed hostel, a job that reveals more about Berlin than anything that academia could have ever taught her. Alongside other immigrants and 20-somethings, she spends her nights in clubs in a haze of ketamine and alcohol, trying to push off the nightmare of feeling a sense of belonging in many places at once, but seemingly wanted by none of those places. We read Layla's story via her diary that she keeps religiously and occasionally reads aloud. She considers what she left behind with her family in Turkey and the security of living where one's language and name and face are the acceptable norm, even as the increasingly a repressive Erdogan regime makes life harder for everyone. Along the way, Leila finds herself against all odds in a relationship with a Swedish Volvo salesman, with conservative politics and a traditionalist sense of the world. What might her life look like if she acceded to the will of what she calls the Turkish housewife living inside her? Would she trade one kind of constraint for another? And would the Western world ever make a place for her, no matter how much she willingly sacrificed? Written with a blazingly original voice, the applicant drops into the veins of urban life of young people on the brink. The brink of success, of failure, of intimacy or loneliness, all shared with an empathy-driven desire to look without a filter, at how life is lived below the surface of capitalism's ceaseless crusade. Nasla Koja has written a novel that, that has the unbuckled propulsion of Kathy Acker and the pre- precision and detail of Rachel Cusk. The applicant marks the debut of an exciting writer with much to say about how we live now. This is Nasla's first novel, published in February of 2023, and she has in the past worked as a cleaner, dishwasher, and bookseller in Berlin, South Bend, Chicago, and New York. She has taught and studied creative writing at the University of Notre Dame and the University of Denver. And her previous work has appeared in Narrative, the Three Penny Review, Book Forum, Second Factory, Books Without Covers, and the Chicago Review of Books. Welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much. What an introduction.
0: It's such a pleasure to have you here. And I wanted to start with the the really eerie and wonderful cover of the applicant that I'm I'm looking at right now. It shows someone cleaning um window or a, a mirror. And it looks both like someone cleaning and also like someone trying to get out and maybe may even sort of like pounding on the surface and I wonder what you think of the cover and and how you think it might represent the book
1: yeah I really love it and it was an interesting journey to cover because the first uh, option that they sent me uh, was completely um, different and like the opposite of this one just really happy though i saw the value in it it was kind of similar to the convenience store woman cover for example how it's oh so yeah happy. Mm. um but it just didn't feel right because i think this book has a lot of drama in it so even though there's humor in the situation and the voice uh, it's also like soapy yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, i didn't want people to be disappointed If they went into it with the expectation of just like a more cold and distant um, irony as style. Not that I don't, Mm. I love it, but I think it's different. Like my voice and Leila's voice is different. And then this cover came and I loved it immediately. And though people were worried, like in the team, uh, that people might think that this was a horror or thriller novel. I, I said to them, at the end of the day, every immigrant novel is also a horror novel. In <laughs> that way, I think it really fits what's going on in the book.
0: That's beautifully said. And and I agree that even, you know, even in the parts where there's a lot of, uh you know, there's a lot of wit and, and kind of light and, as you say, soapy, funny moments, there's constantly that roiling undercurrent, this sense of insecurity that at any moment that that final layer of the bottom could drop out, and and Layla would just be homeless and placeless, and um, and I think the cover really gets that.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you think so. Uh, I definitely think so. It is scary.
0: Layla works at an Alice in Wonderland themed hostel, which I think is like just one of my favorite details in a novel recently. And she cleans rooms, many in a day, for, for little money, plus whatever the guests leave behind, which she calls treasures. The work is grueling, but it's a lifeline for an immigrant um, of uncertain status in Berlin. What made you decide to have Leila be a cleaner, a job that sets her firmly in the in the underclasses of German life, And did you have a model for the wonderful ridiculousness of an Alice-themed hostel?
1: Maybe I'll start from um, the last part of the question. When I was working on this novel, I spent, at first, I spent a couple of months in New York. Then later, I went to live there for a year as well. But the couple of months I spent, I was um, staying in Bed-Stuy and there was this dive bar called Looking Glass. And uh, when I was there, I was just like, wasn't even sure if this was the novel that I wanted to, uh, seriously like work on. But I was just writing into a couple of different projects at the same time. But the idea that this like really cheap and fun dive bar in Bed Stuy uh, was called Looking Glass. It made me think of how um, cleaning makes you just like see everything uh, from like a perspective, or like through a lens that you didn't see before. And once you get into that zone, you just can't unsee the the dirt, the dust. And when you're in a dive bar, for example, you can really enjoy um, the cheap prices. But then like, what about the people who work there? You can enjoy like how people look edgy. But what about the reasons that they go there every day to drink? In that way, something clicked for me there. How in Berlin too, like we just love yeah, I lived in Berlin and I worked as a cleaner too um at a hostel. It wasn't Ellis in Wonderland themed, but I I did think when I was working there too that these people just like coming here to party all the time like and they just um pass through this like city for a lot of them it's kind of a role that they play when they stay at a hostel. Um uh, you know, like they don't necessarily have to stay at a hostel. <laughs> um and then they're just like it it's
0: their edginess
1: exactly yeah and sometimes people assume that everybody around them uh, is also playing the same game but it's not a game for um everyone it's a matter of survival
0: have you happened to see the movie dirty pretty things that stars audrey tattoo well no it's a I uh, it's a very good french film and it and it does some similar kinds of work pulling back the curtain on the precarity of of immigrant labor and and life but in france in this in this case and you know what you said before about this the way in which an immigrant story almost always has an element of horror behind it is i think so true and that movie and your book does a good job of of showing how someone's everyday life isn't always about that horror, but that it sits there and it sits heavy and it affects the way that they can live their life. And I thought that one of the things that made L- L- Layla so interesting is that she was willing to kind of, you know, live within that 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 uncertainty while also seeking out and trying to find things that made her feel like she had a home in a place that she had love and intimacy and um i wonder how you found layla's voice and whether it came to you straight away um or whether it was something that you developed and structured over time
1: i would say it came uh, straight away but of course i worked on it um for a long time and edited a lot of things. Uh, I think the like most tricky part of the craft was like when I was growing up getting older and my writing um, style things that I thought about like revelations I had um, as a person uh, moving on in the world uh, were changing. I wanted Layla to not change so much uh, and I wanted Layla to just be the person someone in her situation would be and her age and like not living in the US not speaking in a um like english speaking not not living in an english speaking country um so i tried uh, like make her use english as um like idiosync- in with idiosyncrasy as much as i could mm-hmm. and though of course like editors come in copy editors come in and they suggest like this is how we say it uh, <laughs> So it was like a a difficult negotiation to just like keep her voice as this like nomadic um, English speaker that doesn't necessarily have to speak English with perfect grammar as, as, you know, Americans call theirs or uh, the British call theirs. There is a different kind of English. There are like, obviously, there are so many Englishes and uh, a lot of people know that, but also. Uh, between nomads nomads, when there is no native speaker around Uh, the way they speak that is something um, that I actually really miss (laughs) um, as like someone living in the US now and I wanted to just like leave some space for that kind of dialogue
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and, and the the kind of foreignizing of of English and and having the reader have to pause for a moment and say that there isn't really one English. There are many, many Englishes used different ways and and mixed in a melange with uh, with words from other languages and and grammars that are uh, that are used and manipulated in a way to make their personalities and everything known. Uh, And I think it's funny that editors wanted to take that out because it's such an important part of Layla's understanding of her place in, in, um, you know, in the world that she's made for herself.
1: Yeah, but I should be fair to my editor, Elizabeth. Uh, She's wonderful and she did allow me to like pursue this. But yeah, of course, like she had to give some suggestions. But at the end of the day, when the copy editor gave her like, you know, Three hundred suggestions, Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, now it's saying you don't have to accept uh, all of these. Just you know, pick and choose.
0: Well, that's um, a yeah. that's the sign of a good editor, I think. Yeah. Um The applicant is really a kind of, in some ways, insider's guide to the life of young people in Berlin. There's the fund. Is that how you say it? Yes. Treasures that Layla finds, which are refundable bottle deposits that are worth money and the U-Bahn and S-Bahn public transport systems, and the Kafkaesque bureaucratic systems that immigrants have to crawl their way through at the overly leisurely pace of, of German bureaucrats. How did you envision making German life visible for a lot of different kinds of readers?
1: That's a good, interesting. I mean, German... Bureaucracy is such a, a famous bureaucracy
0: <laughs> um, the most maybe of, of anywhere, I think.
1: yes. and um, as a you know huge fan of Kafka, I've always been interested in this idea of like people struggling with bureaucracy. I guess it was just natural, uh, just like Berlin being place. I almost didn't have to really craft it. That's just uh, the reality of anyone who lives there. And even if, you know, you can be a really privileged uh, expat, but you'll still struggle so much. Instagram uh, is full of these uh, funny accounts uh, and memes of, like, what's going on. Like, for example, the the foreigner's office, you can't reach them, like, most of the year. Uh, But someone discovered that if you fax them, uh, you can reach them by
0: New facts. <laughs> Do they all uh, live in a time warp in 1983 and can only be reached by facts?
1: Yeah. And uh, obviously, there's a reason for it, right? And many people don't realize, even people who are a part of this bureaucracy, they don't realize what is the purpose of making things more difficult than they have to be. Um, but, and maybe um, in this way, it's not like black and white and completely evil, but. Um, the inherent like purpose of these structures is to just like um, show you your place and whether you're an immigrant or not, like and wherever you are. Uh, even though Germany was like luckily for me uh, the most extreme example and perfect for a novel uh, in terms of showing it uh, in contrast to uh, like the confusion of being a human. In the room we need to make mistakes and um, time we need to understand things. Uh, and so on in most countries when you get married you things get become easier for you or here in the US like as a when you get a visa for one thing you can't do anything else so all of these are just like a part of the system of a nation and a country and like uh, making sure that everybody has a role and everybody has a function and they that they don't short circuit and they just keep functioning Uh, Of course, this is uh, like a very erred system because we're human and um, we do short circuit and uh, we mess up and we fail and we die.
0: Leila's relationship with Turkey is almost like a, a siren song calling her back, even as she understands that she would no longer really understand her place within the politics and culture of Erdogan's Turkey. She worries about the normative gender ideology that she might return to, but she misses her mother and sister and wonders what she has given up to live in a country that so thoroughly refuses to accept her. This is very much an immigrant's story, but it's also a very specific story about leaving contemporary Turkey. Can you talk about balancing both the kind of general immigrant experience and the specificity of Leyla's experience as an immigrant from Turkey in the EU?
1: Leyla gets into it a little bit in the novel, too. And um, many people uh, in Europe and the Middle East are very aware of this. But um, maybe in the U.S. it's more of a new or foreign subject. But there are loads of Turkish or uh, people from Turkey, immigrants from Turkey. In Germany and most Western European countries, they went for they went to rebuild the city after the war, and they just stayed because the city was hungry for more money um, and more workers. And then once uh, they were wealthy enough, they were like, "Okay, you can go now." But those Turkish people and other immigrants, they just didn't go. But they they thought they had it uh, better in Germany, even though they spent like decades living in. Rooms with like 10 other workers uh, working at the factory or the construction site for like 15, 16 hours a day. This went on for a long time, but these people still preferred Germany. There was a reason for leaving uh, for them. And we can't really know the individual reasons, probably personal, also obviously economic reasons. I find it really interesting that these people then also really romanticize uh, Turkey a lot. And a lot of the Turkish citizens who live in Germany, uh, after every election, we see that they keep voting for Erdogan because they want to see this like strong figure as the leader of their home country because mm-hmm. that uh, they're represented by the strong figure in European negotiations like uh, between Turkey and Europe, and they take pride in um, not you know not being from a country where like at least it seems like Turkey is not doing everything that the European Union asks because Erdogan gives all these speeches saying that he won't do them like he gives so many speeches that he, uh, saying that he won't do what uh, Europe wants uh, that like in people's memory it seems like he doesn't do it but at the end of the day he always uh, does <laughs> what um, Europe or America wants and I mm. find that find really funny like how speeches and narratives uh, and images are more important than the actual uh, like decisions being made and what's going on and in that way novels uh, can do the same or like diaries can do the same if you don't like do it like turn it into maybe like a routine or do it with a purpose you can just like uh, repeat to yourself the same stories that you told uh, about the world and yourself to yourself but sometimes you know you just don't have the option um, and you just don't have money to go out and you just Uh, maybe you don't have friends, like for different people, there are different reasons and they have to like spend so much time alone, whether uh, they immigrate to another country or not. And at these moments that we are forced to spend uh, time alone and we're forced to write uh, because there's nothing else to do, then we can get to the bottom of something. And I think the immigrant experience is like that too. Like when you are forced to leave a country for whatever reason, then you have all this time and distance to look at your past and your country from this disturbing, lonely place. And there, there are a lot of benefits to this, but it's also really painful. It's a painful process. I think for Turkish people from my generation and the younger ones, when I lived in Berlin and still had Facebook, there was a Facebook group called New Wave Immigrants. Like, and even though it was a Turkish uh, Facebook group, like New Wave Berlin was the name. And that's funny because it's basically telling you what the demographics uh, of uh, this group of people are. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. English speaking, artsy students, like software engineers, art uh, writers. And I don't know, there is a huge divide between us, like the the Turks who went before and then the Turks who are going for like white collar jobs and blue collar jobs. Like there's just... There is a huge divide. It is. They call Berlin and Kreuzberg little Istanbul. And it's true. It's just like a microcosm of like what's everything that's wrong um, in our country. Just the divide.
0: I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, the idea of a world audience for for writing, which I think in some ways mirrors the issues around immigration and that stratification of a system of who gets to read what, who gets to write for whom. But you have one of the best bits of dialogue about world literature that I've read recently. Uh, Leila's talking to uh, uh, a quasi-friend tourist that she meets about a book by uh, Amin Malouf, the uh, Lebanese-French writer, which Leila had written a review of. And this tourist on holiday in Germany says, I don't like Malouf. He writes for the West and not the East. And Leila's response is really pointed. But isn't that like saying we're here to dance for the West and not the East? Couldn't he be writing for himself and everyone at once? Or what if he is stuck? What if he's both both the East and the West inside? This felt like a powerful statement on how we essentialize a writer's national identity and then decide who or what they can write for, for or from and i wanted to hear more of your perspective on this
1: yeah thank you for this question this is one of the most frustrating things for me as like an academic um in training um i just hate uh, that like the english department can be such a nationalist nationalist project i just every time i naively think that it can't be like they're just going to use it as like a tool they're just going to use the university's money and they're in fact interested in literature (laughs) and writing Mm -hmm. but sometimes uh, you come across uh, institutions departments like professors that really like think that the like nation or tradition i should say because english is not even like representing one nation but just this cultural prioritizing project i don't know how we came uh, you know we came here i don't know how we got here but then i calmed myself uh, down by reminding myself that not everybody thinks like this well <laughs> so, um not everybody is like this and i've been reading a lot about this um lot of theory and uh, scholarly um articles especially about turkish literature too realizing that not every country talks about it the way we do here in america like for example, um, historically, traditionally, novels and storytelling traditions in Turkey—they they're inherently transnational because mm-hmm. uh, because of the way that like the Ottoman Empire came to be, and then things where things went from there. It's long, long history. Um, but the important thing there is that not everybody talks about um, a writer as like Turkish writer, Turkish American writer, and. We don't have to do that. Okay. I'm not giving you a very articulate um, answer just because
0: uh, this is what no, I'm. You are, you are. I mean, it's such a complicated issue, I think.
1: Yeah. And um, we just, of course, there are writers who love their nations and nationality and they want to like represent that, recreate uh, like what it means to be in an X, X Y uh, country. But then, um, there are writers like, for example, Bolano, like who I feel like belongs to the entire world. Not that he is so uh, like perfect in the way he represents everything, but at least I think I see it as a genuine, uh, an authentic um, like attempt process of uh, moving around the world by both accepting that like you can never forget where you come from. But also showing us that like the steps that you took um, from like your birthplace to your current location, uh, both mentally and physically. It is an experience in itself. And yeah, he is a huge influence for me. Just not only an influence, but just like someone who showed me that I could do and could be what I already felt like being and doing.
0: Oh, I love that. That's such a nice way to think of that. Have you read um, Gloria Fisk's book on Orem Palmuk and the Good of World Literature? No, it's a it's a book that that works with a lot of the things that you're talking about and tries to kind of deessentialize uh, one of you know Turkey's most well known world writers. Uh, but you might be interested in it. I, I think it 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 agrees with you.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'll I'll take a look. Uh,
0: so, uh, as she considers what it would mean for her to no longer be able to stay in Berlin, Layla meets and and starts a relationship with the most unlikely of people: this Volvo salesman from from Sweden, who has politics that really, if we dig down into them might in fact be harmful to her as, a, as an immigrant. Someone who holds conservative, what he calls right-wing viewpoints, might be antithetical to the very nature of Layla's being able to live somewhere that is not her national identity. And yet she has this kind of profound experience of both loving with him, but then having a kind of domestic experience with him. And I'm very interested in how this sort of Swede came into the came into the book for you, and why it was important for her to have this intimacy with someone who she really kind of fundamentally disagrees with about how the world works.
1: I think we all need this kind of shock, like on a regular basis, because um, like when we time like um, spend too much time in communities that we joined because we agreed on certain things, we just stop forgetting that we can actually disagree on small things and feel like we should agree on everything. And when we realize that we don't really agree on everything and when we realize that this community doesn't really want to accept us the way that we are or the way that we are becoming um, or the way we were or the the ways in which we change, we want to change, then we end up like Layla. Um, You know, she, Mm -hmm. all her other friends are um, more or less uh, like her, but, and that's why she can't quite understand. And like, until she kept the diary, it seems like she didn't, um, she didn't quite like, okay, okay, let me rewind. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think Layla meets the Swede. She realizes that a lot of the smaller fears, like for example, the moment that she's thinking about Chris Krause and Kathy Ecker and like Mm -hmm. feeling guilty for like, liking the book then like the swede comes in and she's like oh actually like these things don't matter uh to like they don't matter to the swede for sure and maybe they would matter to like her intellectual friends but it actually shouldn't um because it's at the end of the day what she feels and what she thinks is the most important in terms of like um moving on and like starting starting the process of thinking about these Issues like if you start from a point of view that like that include that has to include the view uh, or the potential disagreements or agreements of your whole uh, so-called uh, community, then you will you will not come to like a point that you would have on your own necessarily.
0: No, sir. No, sir. Uh, so, one of the things going on in this novel is a wonderful conversation that Layla has with herself about the differences between memoir and fiction. And she has these internal debates about what it means to open oneself up to scrutiny, to vulnerability, to open one's family and friends up to that kind of exposure. And also about whether there is such a thing even as the ability to call up memories in a way that you could say is, is monolithically true and that memory itself is so flawed that offering something up in that way is its own kind of deception. And I was thinking about how interesting it is to have Layla writing in this diary. We're we're supposedly reading the diary, and then the diary has this potential to become this public thing, to be published and and to be open to the world. And I wondered how you engaged with those questions around kind of the vulnerability of truth telling and the impossibility of truth telling in that way that we sometimes expect from memoir.
1: Yeah, I think um that is another product of publishing, uh, like this sharp distinction. I would like to think that it's not the same in every country. I think um, the distinction uh, and the boundaries uh, between fiction and memoir are not necessarily as strict in Turkey for good and bad reasons. And the uh, like bad one, I guess, is that like people get charged with speech crimes for the things that their fictional characters say. There is this rapper that. It now lives in Berlin. He was arrested for a little bit, uh, but he was super famous, so they had to let him out. And then when he got out, he left. Anyway, um, the charge was that his lyrics said uh, marijuana and maybe not even, didn't even say the word, but just like obviously implied it. And I think in the trial, he was making the argument that it's a work of art, uh, like fiction, even though like, as like someone um, who doesn't know about the trial, if you hear a rapper talking about fiction, uh, like things that are going on in the lyrics by referring to it as fiction, you might be suspicious or not want to disagree and like prove him wrong. But sometimes, sometimes it's something that people have to do and on that scale. But I think um, on smaller scales, everybody has to do those things to navigate life. Like in the US, um, people have to show different faces of themselves in like different social circles, different professional circles, more so than any other country I've lived in. Uh, And I find that um, concerning and like very difficult. And also with social media too, there are so many people uh, who are just like seeing everything as potential content. Uh, as they live it, sometimes it stops them from actually living it because they have to take a photo. Uh, but that is actually uh, life itself for these people, and it's not necessarily bad. So I think that the social media and publishing, like becoming more, uh, more and more, a scary huge uh, marketplace. A good uh, result of it is that like more books are being published. So there are just more storytellers that. Feel like whatever experience they live uh, can become a story shared with other people and in, um, in a form of like art or uh, whatever they want to call it so in that way the boundaries are being uh, erased everywhere and mm. though it's a dangerous place to be sometimes I think if we just accept it, maybe uh, we can find ways to feel safer in this. Maybe it wouldn't necessarily mean that we are faking things, or we're uh, like fictionalizing things, or we're lying. But instead, we're learning to be honest about things that are difficult to um, like acknowledge and accept about each other, uh, let alone ourselves in real life. But then we love to read about them in novels.
0: Mm-hmm. I hadn't given enough time to thinking about how dangerous it could be to have the merging of categories if you live in a in a country in which speech is policed. That's such an interesting and terrifying point.
1: Yeah, I remember reading some articles about um, similar things happening in the U.S. to rappers, for example, and similar trials uh, taking place. So there's, there's more to look at um, on this issue.
0: Absolutely. Before I let you go, I would love to know if you have any books that you've been reading recently that you'd like to recommend to our listeners.
1: Yes. Yesterday, I just uh, finished reading Yoko Tawara's Scattered All Over the Earth, translated by Margaret uh, Mitsutani, and I loved it. Have you read it?
0: Haven't, no. I know Tawada, but I don't know that one.
1: It's really good and people have been recommending Yoko to me for a long time, but I only um, had time to just dive in now and she's amazing and the book is amazing and uh, it deals with all the um, issues um, of the applicant, in the applicant I think, but also goes into languages and disappearing countries in like a Uh, in a way that is almost speculative because there is this unnamed uh, nation that has disappeared which uh, we think is Japan Um,
0: Mm -hmm. Fascinating
1: Yeah, in that way speculative but then there are also a lot of things that have happened, like for example, Yugoslavia as a disappeared country and Mm -hmm. East Berlin as a disappeared country and by putting this light speculative thread, Yoko Tawara just like makes us realize how we already live in this kind of world and then the world was already like a creation uh, based on other people's speculations. Um,
0: Oh, I have to read that. That sounds wonderful.
1: Yeah, I would definitely recommend it to uh, you and anyone who is interested in um, transnational fiction. And the other one that I've uh, been thinking a lot about is a novel with the title Lojman. And Lojman by Ebru Ojan, um, a Kurdish Uh, author from Turkey, she wrote this novel in Turkish. Selin Gökçesu and Aron Aji translated it. It It's coming out on August 3rd, I think, from City Lights. And lojman in Turkish, uh, by way of French, means like government housing. So when you're a teacher, for example, being sent to teach in uh, rural Turkey, uh, they they give you like free housing. Uh, And these are often uh, kind of like military bases of the u.s as like a concept but of course like they're not as polished and um they don't have the resources so they're like remote old buildings this novel is about a family who is abandoned by the state and by the state teacher uh, the father who took them there and it's about what happens to them in this abandoned like logeman um in the middle of nowhere mm. it is- yeah, it is a really strong novel, and I think for people um, who like Turkish literature and you know who've read like people like Orhan Pamuk and want to read more, um, this would be a really eye-opening um, perspective and alternative because totally different face of Turkey and what it means to live in Turkey.
0: I. That uh, sounds so amazing, and I'm really happy that you brought it to my attention. And I and I love the books that City Light books finds and and kind of gives a different audience to it sounds like something that so many different kinds of readers would love and i'm really happy to know about it
1: yeah i used to do that um yeah i hope you'll enjoy
0: and i i just can't recommend enough than the applicant which is just a novel that absolutely just grabbed me from from the moment i started it the the voice is so original and unique and propulsive and raw and yet there's so much wit and enjoyment to be found even in the struggles there within so thank you so much Nazla it was it was such a pleasure to talk to you about this wonderful book
1: thank you so much for having me it was my pleasure as
0: well thank you Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to Nasla Koja for coming on to discuss her debut novel, The Applicant. You can find links to purchase Nasla's novel and all of her recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.